verse one through six. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. Do you hear the desperation in Elijah's voice there? But God, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 11 and 12. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 17 through 24. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of that olive tree, of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree. And then verse 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask during this time that there might be less of us and more of you. That we might decrease in our desire for and hold of, uh, of power or, or knowledge or wisdom or uh, the the assumed illusion of control that we think we have that we really don't, less of us and more of you. And may that extend beyond today, forever. For we pray this through Jesus and in the power of the Spirit, amen. If we're going to understand Romans 11, I want to ask you to disconnect, mentally disconnect from whatever your news source is. 
Wherever you get current news, wherever you get current events, I want you to mentally disconnect from that if you are able. Because there's not one single news source that you will ever listen, that you've listened to, that believes, that, that looks at current events through what Jesus has actually accomplished. Not one. There's not one of them that actually believe that Jesus has done anything through his death and through his resurrection. So they do not interpret current events through the lens of Jesus. So disconnect yourself mentally, if you can, from whatever your news source is. And I want you to plug in mentally to the story of Abraham. I want you to think about the reality that Romans 11 has roots all the way back to Genesis 12 and even beyond to where God finds Abraham and he comes to Abraham and he says, I am going to give you a people. I'm gonna make of you a great nation. I am gonna give you a land. And from you, all the nations are going to be blessed. That's where I want you to plug in. That's what I want you to have in your mind. That's where I want you to plug in. In other words, as your pastor, I am asking you. I would get on my knees, but I won't. I'm begging you. Get above all the noise. Get above all the mess that goes on in our culture Get above all the polarization and, and, and how much we get intoxicated by what we think we hear and what we think is going on. Get above that and sink your heart into something that's so much more real, so much deeper, that's so much more substantial, that can actually help you in a day-to-day way. Not just keep that anger going, not just where we typically are so easily emotionally invested. Disconnect from that and plug in to God's story. Plug in to what God has been doing in the world that he's talking about in Romans 11 that has these roots all the way back even to Genesis 12 and even before that. Get your emotions attached to that and pray that I will too, all right? So here's the point this morning. If you were to summarize Romans 11, here's the takeaway. If you go out these doors and say, well, what in the world did he talk about today? Here it is in one sentence. Live for the life of the world. It's that simple. Live for the life of the world. Here are three stops on our journey through Romans 11 this morning. We're gonna take the language of verse 36 and see it back through the whole chapter. So here are three stops on our journey of thinking about living for the life of the world. From him, through him, and to him. Those are gonna be our stops today as we think about living for the life of the world. So we're gonna start with from him. From him maybe raises some questions in your mind. They're good. You'll find these questions in verse one and in verse 11. This may be the question you have on your mind. Well, what is God's relationship to his people? If everything is from him, then what's the relationship like between God and his people? Look at verse one. Here's question number one. Has God rejected his people? Look at verse one, it's right there. And the answer is, real quick, no. 
May it never be. No, he's not rejected his people. And then Paul goes on to give us all kinds of reasons, things that we need to think about. So let's work through these quickly. Paul begins by thinking about this idea of election. Those that he is, those that God is foreknown or foreloved, pre-loved. No, God has not rejected his people. He has many people that he has chosen to love. Now remember, this idea of election is something that we may not like to think about. But the Bible, this is what the Bible teaches about it. We are so rebellious. When we sinned against God, it left such a deep and profound change in us that we were rendered incapable of coming to God on our own. So when Adam and Eve in the garden way back as recorded for us in the first couple chapters of Genesis, when they rebelled against God, we were there. That's what Romans 5 says. We've talked about that together. And when they sinned, we were right there. We sinned with them. And that rendered us spiritually dead before God. Which meant that God had to come to us and initiate a relationship with us again. And it meant that our rebellion was so deep and so profound that not only were we incapable of coming to God on our own, it meant that we needed far more than just help from God. It's not that he just, we just need a little bit, a little push from him. It meant that we need nothing less than a new birth, spiritual birth, resurrection. We need a new heart. And when God comes into our lives, he gives us a new heart. And because of that, we end up choosing Jesus and willingly running to him and saying, yes, Jesus, thank you for your, your pre-love of me. Thank you for pre-loving me. That's why when you go back and read these verses, what's connected to the idea of election in the first 10 verses is this idea of grace. Look at verse five and six. That election is connected to grace because our relation with God is based upon grace. You see, we are so profoundly dead spiritually before God. That, God, that we could never earn anything before him. We couldn't get back his favor. We needed him to pursue us and act on us. But you see, here's the issue, here's the rub. As Paul writes this, as Paul writes this in the first century and even today, there are those like in the first century that they want to come to God in another way. They want to come to God through works. Those that were in the first century, predominantly the Jewish people, they, they want to approach God through works. They want to be a good person and thought that being a good person was good enough for God. So you see, Paul is telling us that has God rejected his people? No, he's still pursuing them because he's chosen to love them. 
And he's pursuing them in grace. But they don't want grace. They want to they perform their way to God or establish a relationship with God based on performance or grow and keep it going, keep that relationship going by performance. And just in case you think, well, that's not me. I love grace. No, you don't. Do you, do, have you ever thought about how offensive grace is to us? You know, when you read the Bible, you will find things that have the effect of saying this. You know, there's not one of us here who is any better than Putin, Osama bin Laden. Pick someone else, Larry Nasser, Larry Vassar. Now, one, well, there's not one of us who are any better than any of them. And if you are living your life and working really hard at being a good person, do you know how offensive it is to hear that you are no different than Hitler? And even more than that, the message of grace says that someone like Hitler or like Putin, all they have to do is say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, Lord, please forgive me because of Jesus, and boom, they're forgiven. And meanwhile, you've been working for years or decades to be a good person, and all that they have to do is just ask for forgiveness and admit they're wrong? That's really offensive, isn't it? Because you've been working really hard. You've been doing everything you can to not be a bad person. You've been doing everything you can to be a good person. But what's below the surface of that? Is it in your heart? We all are just attached to being good and trying to be good. And God's saying, your relationship with me is by grace alone. That you're actually so bad as a person, you're not even kind of good. In relationship to God, you're, just, you're, a, you're a rebel. I'm a rebel. And God's grace convinces us that we are far away from God even when we think that we're good. And that the only way that we have a chance with God is because he has been gracious to us in Jesus. And we don't like that. I mean, we want a little bit of God, but then we just want to take that and be a better person. And God says, no, it's all because of what I have done. I'm the one that gets the glory, God says. We don't get glory. We can't boast. Even faith is a gift, the Bible says. You see, this is why, in answering this question, not only is election connected with grace, but it's also why in verse 7 through 10 we see this idea of hardening. Because if you want to come to God by your works, by your performance, if you want to maintain your relationship with God by your works, by your performance, let me just fast forward a little bit or just say it like it is in your life. It is exhausting. And to continually reject the grace of God may mean that God ends up hardening you by doing this, letting you have it. Anybody ever been bowling? I'm a horrible bowler. 
But you know, when you go bowling, you can get these bumpers put up on the lanes, you know, and they pretty much guarantee that unless you're bowling the ball at 200 miles an hour, uh, the ball is going to hit some pins, okay? Unless, you are just, unless you're just so horrible that the ball leaves your hand and jumps over other lanes. You get it in your lane with the bumpers up, and those bumpers are going to keep the ball going down, and they're going to knock off some pins. When God says he hardens us, what he does is he just removes those bumpers. And he just says, you want to go for the gutter? Go for it. You think you're running for pins, but guess what? You're just in one side and over on the other, and it is exhausting. But if that's what you want, go ahead. Go ahead. You see, has God rejected his people? No. He's continuing to initiate relationship with them. He's continuing to pursue his people. Look at verse 1. Here are a couple more quick answers before we move on. Paul says what? Me, me, me. Has God rejected his people? No, me, me. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew by birth. Of course God hasn't rejected his people. Look at me. He saved me. I was the one that was pursuing those who were followers of Christ. I was pursuing them to throw them in jail and to kill them. And here I am. I was the one who was living, thinking that my relationship with God was based on performance. Here I am now saying, oh no, my performance is a wreck. And it is exhausting. But Christ, but Jesus. And then Paul even adds this historical story with this guy named Elijah. Has God rejected his people? It's not the first time in history someone's asked that. There was this guy named Elijah, and without going into all the details, he had this amazing day in which he got to witness the unbelievable power of God. And the next day, guess where Elijah is? In the dumps, depressed. So much so, I love the language that Paul uses here. Lord, have you rejected your people? Everybody's against me. <laughs> Nobody, everybody hates me. Am I the only one left? And God so sweetly, gently whispers to him, no, Elijah. Got 7,000 plus. Keep going. Has God rejected his people? Verse 1 through 10 no. Well, verse 11, uh, are things so bad that there's no retrieval? Are things so bad? Are God's people so far gone? Is Israel so far gone? Are the Jewish people so far gone that nothing can be done? Verse 11 says, no. Not at all. Matter of fact, in 11 through 16, God lets us in on understanding what's been happening in the scope of the world. He lets us understand what he's been doing. Look back at verse 11 and following. Look at what he says. Yes, the Jews have rejected me, but in their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, guess what has happened? People who are non-Jews, people like us, Gentiles, have been brought in. And the reason that we've been brought in is so the Jews might be provoked to jealousy. 
They should be provoked to jealousy because as they look at what is happening to people who are not Jewish people, they would recognize that what God has said in the Old Testament, their book is coming true. And that might provoke them to say, wait a minute, Jesus is the Messiah. Do you see that in the text? That they might be provoked to jealousy. So that as Gentiles come in, it might end up bringing in far more Jews. So that there might be this huge, massive amount of people. Because you see, in the first century, the Jews would know very well that God came to Abraham and said to Abraham, Hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make of you a people. It's going to become a great nation. And through that, I'm going to bless the world so that all people groups are blessed through you, Abraham. And the Jews might remember that story of Abraham and see non-Jews coming to Christ and think, oh my, we've missed the Messiah. Look at what's been happening in history so that God's people might be built up and grow and flourish all through what Jesus has done. Everything centering on Christ. So has God rejected his people? Not at all. Are they so far gone? Not at all. God is so powerful that he can take the most horrific decisions that we have ever made, including rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, to work it into a glorious end in which more people come to faith. Isn't that amazing? That's what Paul's telling us. That's what God's telling us through Paul. Well, from him. Second stop is through him. And when you look at verse 17 through 24, God gives us an image. For those of us that like illustrations, God gives it to us in verse 17 through 24. If you want to think about it this way, God says, I want you to think about a tree. I want you to think about an olive tree. Because the olive tree represents my people. And there are branches that represent the Jewish people, and then there are other branches that he identifies as wild branches that are Gentiles that are brought in. So that at the end of the day, there are some that are cut off, there are others that are brought in, so at the end of the day, it is one big group of people all connected to one tree. And the trunk of that tree is Jesus, it's the gospel. You see, God has always had a people in mind. Ever since Genesis 1, this is not a new thing. God told Adam and Eve to what? Be fruitful and multiply. Spread my glory throughout the whole world. This has always been God's plan. God has always intended to have one people. And that one people is centered and anchored and rooted in Jesus Christ. And the reality that he is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. The reason why I'm mentioning all this to you for a quick sidebar is this. Bear with me, I'll make this quick. In the late 1800s, a new theology emerged 
And that theology sought to, instead of looking at the scriptures as one story, to think about the scriptures in dividing them up. And when that happened, people started putting Jewish people, raising them to a level of prominence, as if they were better than others, or as if all prophetic things in scripture must be read through ethnic Jews. And in the extreme of that, there are people who have thought that there are actually two ways to get to God. One was found in the Old Testament, in which God's people, the Jews, came to God through their works. And the other way of salvation was through Jesus in the New Testament. And I want you to understand that this illustration is telling you that's not true. There's always been one people of God that is centered on one person whose name is Jesus. There's never been any other way to God other than through Jesus. It was either waiting for him to come and anticipating his coming or looking back at what he has done. In other words, if you've ever gotten pressure to think, well, we really need to pray for the Jewish people or we, or we really need to give to, um, to Israel or, or maybe you felt this pressure of, um, well, if we don't protect Israel, is God going to curse us? I want you to hear that God is saying we shouldn't care about Jewish people any more than we do any other people group. Yes, we should give our resources. Yes, we should pray for. But friends, the whole point of the Old Testament is to teach us that there is only and will only ever be one true Jew. And his name is Jesus. He is the only one that has fulfilled all of the law. He is the one to whom all of the sacrifices were pointing. He is the faithful and true priest. He is the true king. He is the true prophet. You can trace his lineage back to Adam and to David. He is the only true Jew who absorbed the curse for people like you and me. And he is the one who doesn't inherit one simple place in the, of, on the globe. He inherits the whole earth. That is what God is doing. He is filling the earth with his glory, expanding his kingdom through what Christ has accomplished because Christ is gathering people and peoples from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Everything is centered on Jesus. So care about all people groups. Give your resources away to the expanding of his kingdom and planting churches everywhere. Care about Israel in the same way that you do Palestine. Care about Israel in the same way that you do North Korea. Care about Israel in the same way you do our country. Care about Israel in the same way you would the UK everywhere. Because the message is about Christ. Everything centers on him. That's why God gives us one tree, one trunk. People are brought in to make one gigantic group. And that all leads us 
to to him. From him, through him, and to him. Look back at verse 33 through 36. It's unbelievable. This whole chapter is saturated in Old Testament language and pulling from different places in the Old Testament. But I want you to see something, especially if you have your Bibles open and look back at the end of chapter 10. Because remember, 9, 10, and 11 all fit. Remember, all this fits together. At the end of chapter 10, look at God's posture. It literally says that God is there with open hands. In other words, God is standing on the precipice of chapter 11, saying to us, here I am. I'll take anyone that comes to me. And if you want to know what I'm doing in the world, I'm open-handed with that too. If you're doubting whether or not I care about my people, let me tell you I do. If you see their rejection, let me tell you how I'm working it for good. He is open-handed. He is telling you what's going on in his mind. He's conveying to us his plan for the entire world, for all of history. And how in the world do we get in on all this? How in the world do we get in on this mission? How in the world do we live for the life of the world? How do we do that? Well, verse 33 through 36 are telling us. You may not like the answer initially, but here it is. Worship. Worship. Give all that you are to him. All of your thoughts, your time, your resources, everything that you are to him. Worship God. What's the conclusion of this reality that God is doing this amazing thing in the world? Worship. Worship. And what is so striking about these verses is that worship is derived from what is beyond us, not so much what we know exhaustively or comprehensively. You do realize how counterintuitive that is, right? We like to worship what we see and what we see perform and what we know. You realize that, right? Let's just boil this down. If you live in Greenville, you should love the pirates, okay? And the, and the Pirate football team had an amazing victory yesterday. They were up 41-7 to at halftime. That's incredible. If you look at the stat line of the quarterback, uh, Holton had um, 460-some yards passing. By the way, that is incredible. 200 yards would be great. And he had six touchdowns. Now, I'm not saying you should worship Holton Aylers. But my point is, you see someone perform, you observe what they do, you know what they do, and you think, whoa, this person deserves praise. This person deserves adulation. They deserve recognition for what they have accomplished, for what you see and what you have observed that they have done. What 33 through 36 is saying is that God is so far beyond us that it stops us in our tracks, and all that we can do is fall down and start praising him. What, what do you do with what you don't know? 
What, 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 what do you do in your life when you come across something that you don't know? When someone asks you something you don't know, for example, oh, you hit, you hit up Google. Another option is you hear something that someone says and you don't know it and you think, oh, I'm going to fact check that. And then there are probably some times where you're like, Psh, I don't care. And you just dismiss it because you don't even care. Look at these verses. God's wisdom and God's knowledge are beyond every category that we have. As a matter of fact, his judgments are inscrutable. They are beyond our comprehension. Matter of fact, who in the world can give something to God and put God in his debt? How many of us can counsel God? Do you see? When you think about who God is and what he's doing in the world and how he can turn horrific things that we do into magnifying his glory and making things far better than what we could ever imagine. By the way, that means an awful lot to me as someone's going through cancer. That God can take the breaking down of my body and bring him more glory. And I'm not like it. That brings me to the end of myself where I have to stop and yield and submit and bow down. I have to lay my mind at his feet. I have to lay my plans at his feet. I need to lay down all of my resources for him. I need to lay down my plans and submit them to whatever he is doing. Do you see? It's worship. It's worship. When you come into God's presence and you encounter this type of being, a being that knows all things, a being that knows what it's like to be human from the inside. A being that knows what is on every human heart. A being that provides resolution to every human heart. A being that can take the most tragic events and experiences known to mankind and turn them into a magnification of his glory alone. A being that knows everything comprehensively at the same time. A being that is comprehensively thoughtful. A being that comes to me and to you in grace. There is no other option 
than to bow down and worship and praise and to thank him for how far beyond all of us he is. And that he does all of that, just to make this clear, for each of you personally and individually. There is no other being like this. And it is by grace that we bow down. Because by grace we understand that we don't deserve unconditional love. Matter of fact, perhaps too often we feel the weight of our own sin in light of what Christ has done. Because we struggle to believe that God could love us in that way, don't we? And that's not to minimize sin, please. It's to magnify his loving grace toward us in Christ.